Sunday, July 17th, the Cortez Cinema returns to Manson's Hall after more than a three-decade absence. As George Sirk explained, Cortez Cinema is a film organization that I created in the 1970s. John Modishaw gave me the idea for the name. He thought Cortez Cinema would be perfect. Now, we're talking film here. We're not talking video or digital memory cards. We're actually talking about moving images, the very basic form of projecting motion onto a screen. The human eye gets fooled at about 16 frames a second. So if you can run 16 pictures past a lens that has a bulb behind it and project it on the wall, the human eye doesn't see the spaces between each little picture. If you go to 18, it becomes smoother. You go to 24, even smoother. And there's no like little jarring, right? And my very, very, very good friend, Bristol Foster, who just turned 90, my naturalist mentor, he had made films as he went across the world with Robert Bateman. And he used his Bolex, which is a Swiss camera, and I believe he shot 16 millimeter film. A lot of people are familiar with 35 millimeter slides. Well, half that width basically is the film. You can run about four minutes through a camera. You wind it up, no, no electric motors. You can get electric motors, but these cameras were like work hoses. You could take it to Tibet. You could take it to Africa, South America, you name it. All you had to do was wind it up. Each one was four minutes long. And my past father-in-law, Ian Hay, owned a Bolex. And so I thought, well, I'll make some movies. And in my youth, I was always crazy about Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Jacques Tati, the great French filmmaker. And I was inspired by their work, right? Humor and sequentialism, which means like in Charlie's case, the others as well. Film was very expensive in the 1920s. You could just imagine a hundred years ago how much it would have cost to run film. When Bristol gave me the film, it was worth about $25 a roll. Those rolls are now about $150. But in Charlie's time, it would have been, in today's dollars, astronomical. So they rehearsed each scene 10 times till he had it perfect. No film running. Then he would shoot that scene. And then when he stopped shooting those, let's say, 12 seconds, or some of the takes were actually longer, he then rehearsed the next scene and started the camera again at that same spot. So the editing is done inside the camera. You don't cut the film up later, right? They always say, oh, the best shots are left on the cutting room floor because he did not want to cut the film and put it together. He shot sequentially. And I was very much inspired by this because I only had four minutes. And I certainly wasn't going to have to edit or take it again. So my films were all sequential. I would shoot a scene and then we just go right to the next scene and shoot that and so forth till the four minutes was up. Every once in a while, I did have to cut something, but very, very rarely. So that formed the basis to the shorts that I made. And we're talking 1975. This year in September, it'll be my 50th year here on Cortez. 
we weren't here all those 50 years, about 12 of them, we were in Victoria, but we always returned to Cortez every one of those 12 years, right? Summertime and whatever. Cortez was a, let's face it, a different place 75 years ago. People had bathtubs in their backyard. Some people still do. And they lit fires under them and they had baths outside. To have a bath inside, well, that's pretty fancy, right? So my very first film was called Chicken Soup. And Chicken Soup, I proceed to have a bath in my graduation suit from high school. And I make chicken soup in the bathtub. And then I finish off by having a bowl of that soup, all in four minutes. Do you have a bath in the bathtub while you were making the soup? Yeah, I was in there. I was chopping all the vegetables in on board and wearing a nice bowler hat from Peru. So it's pretty silly. And almost all the shorts that Cortez Cinema produced were indeed madcap, as they call it on the poster, and silly. The fundamental of making films is you have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It sounds so simple. But what if you don't have the end figured out, you can get into a lot of trouble. The film loses its feel. And we all have seen films like, I liked the film, but I thought the ending was weak. I was very careful to always have a script and do the drawings of each scene with the storyboard. And I had it all figured out what I was going to do. I had a lot of great friends who were very imaginative. So I didn't create all the plots myself. I had other friends, Jim Palmer, Pierre Dutre, even Al Murray. We would collaborate in creating the plot. And it was so much fun. One film led to another. There's a happy ending. There's children who are now 48 years old, about <laughs> 40 years old. They were babes back then and they're in the films. I had a lot of help with a lot of cameos as well in some of the films. Many of the old timers, as we call them, I would ask them if they could do just a short little something or other in the film for me. So I ended up capturing quite an interesting cross section of Cortez. We had all the hippies, we're, we're doing fine. And, and then we had the old timers as well, the residents of Cortez who'd been here for a long time. And a lot of the people in the festival have passed away. These might be some of the only shots we have of them in motion, right? The other thing about the film is an illusion. We put it on the wall and we think that is actually happening, but we know it's not actually happening. So... The illusion of life is captured in film. Uh, it's actually lots of fun to see the people and their antics. After a few years, I went to shooting Super 8. Pierre Dutre had a beautiful Super 8 camera, uh, Roly. And Super 8 is half the size, again, of the 16. They, they made a, an eight millimeter film as well. Kodak had it and lots of people made eight millimeter home movies. So what they did is they made the sprockets holes even smaller because it runs on a sprocket. That's how it runs through the camera. They made the holes smaller and they could make then the picture bigger, but still keep the same width of the film. 
And then the quality of the rolling has a fantastic lens. All photographers really know they, the quality of the lens will depict how good the image looks, right? So then I moved into Super 8. No, there were three minutes, but still $25. It added up, sequentialism stayed. And I showed all these films back then in the 70s and early 80s, right? At the Manson's Hall or Whaletown Hall. And there's people around who remember these films because they really stuck <laughs> in their memory. Like They were so silly. It's so wonderful. And the, 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 the one film which I really, really like, and it's about six, seven minutes, and I had to edit that one to put it together. I used the Roly, and it's called Where Does the Lone Ranger Take His Garbage? To the dump, to the dump, to the dump, dump, dump. And Al Murray stars in this film. And Al, uh, unfortunately, he's passed away, but he was one, he was a, um, a genuinely funny man. He, he just he could just make all kinds of things funny out of nothing. And he could ride a hobby horse with a head with a stick. And he played the Lone Ranger. I'm not going to give you the plot of this film, but he's fabulous in this thing, right? And uh, uh, a lot of people don't realize that we used to have a dump here. You took your stuff, you threw it all in your truck or your car, and you went to the dump, same location as the recycling center is now, and then you just backed up your truck and everything just went off the truck into a big heap and it tumbled down the hill and the ravens all enjoyed whatever you threw down there, beds or garbage or food or everything. And that was our dump. And and it, it inspired us to make this great film. It's one of my favorites. And back then, uh, we had gravel roads. So there's the history of that has been captured by Cortez Cinema. And I've been working with the museum. I mean, 20 years ago, I copied some of the films on VHS. But I mean, who's, who's playing VHS now, right? Uh, nobody. And the quality of VHS wasn't very good. And I had to like to transfer the the videos over and those, those would have been videos over to VHS. So I've had this association with the museum for a couple couple of decades. And then the last two or three years I've been talking with um, Jill Milton, Donna McLaren uh, at the museum about seeing whether the museum would host somehow carry my documentaries and films and have them go into their archives, serve them other than just in my big suitcase that I got here. We were kept thinking about this, how to do this. Digitizing film is extremely expensive. Easy, you could do, spend a hundred bucks on four minutes. That's beyond my budget or the museum's budget. We're talking 10 shorts here. That's a thousand bucks right there. And then the other film, you're up to two or $3,000. That's when Doug and Melanie McCaffrey bought Becca's Beans coffee. Doug is a professional digitizer. He has a machine about the size of a small refrigerator on its side, and it can play 16 millimeter, eight, even 35 millimeter film, and pass it through a special lens and 
digitize the image. He can also restore as well. And he does this professionally. Well, here he moves to Cornell Island last October. And I used to drive transit bus with him in Victoria. So we struck up a, a friendship and he said, sure, I'll digitize these for the museum. And that's as far as we were going to go with it. But once he saw the films, he was so tickled by them. <laughs> he says, you've got to have a film festival. I thought, hmm, okay, that'd be interesting. You know, film festival with only one film producer, myself, right? You know, one producer. So I thought, well, why not? We approached the museum and a museum were totally on board. So it's really a three-pronged approach to the festival. The museum is a big part of it because they're the hosts. They're doing all the advertising, the door and the renting of the equipment. And Doug, who's digitized it, and then myself with my films, right? Almost all of them are silent films. So we're hoping to have some music go along with the films like they used to do, a guy or a gal playing on the piano, right? Do, 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 whatever was happening there. So we're hoping to have some music to go along with the films. You know, the three organizations are, are been working three months on this. It's a huge job to digitize and then put the order in of which films are we going to play. There's two feature films. One is the only one where Cortez Cinema actually made money. All these other films, you know, I just shot them and we have them. Another thing I did is I copied the films. So I sent them off once I got them back. I would play the copy. And the masters were never projected except the ones. Doug has said that because of that, the films are in beautiful condition. You know, normally they get scratched, run through a projector or dust on them and stuff like that. But the masters are literally pristine and I kept them cool and dark for decades. And so they survived the, the test of time. There was one film in 1981 at 16 millimeter where Robert Cabot, who helped to buy the Linnea farm from Ken and Hazel Hansen, he wanted a film made, a documentary of Linnea during this transition when Ken and Hazel had moved across the street, that hill, a slope across the street from the parking lot at Linnea, right? And I even got Barry Miles get up in his airplane and we shot footage from the air. I proceeded to make about a 25, 30 minute documentary and, and uh, we put a soundtrack on it. My friend Glenn Diaz did the recorder on it. Those were laid on later. I didn't collect any sound during the shooting because I didn't have that equipment. I just shot silent, but we added it. So this film actually has sound of the narration of the story. I think people will find it very fascinating what Linnea looked like 40 years ago. We used to have a dairy there and the Hansons sold raw milk for many years, probably 20 years. I don't know how many years. They delivered it on the islands. I think it was uh, three times a week, right? Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. If you're on the good books, you got butter. Linnea actually did take over the dairy, but the provincial government came in there and bureaucrats got a hold of this thing and shook the life out of it and uh, stopped the dairy. Oh no, raw milk. Oh my God, that's got this and that in it and all that. So that actually stopped. So that's one of the documentaries. Very, very neat because once again, it's history. And I think that's the key to the festival is that this is the history of Cortez captured back then by 
Cortez Cinema. I didn't shoot all the time. Some of the time, my sister, Anna, shot some of the footage. It's very hard to be in a bathtub and run the camera. But if you've looked really carefully, you see my lips move. And I say, cut. Then Anna would stop the camera. The other documentary is made in 81, when Isolde Rusenberg and I went to Papua New Guinea in Australia. And you might meet the odd person that says, I've been to Papua New Guinea. Well, how about, I've been to Papua New Guinea twice. This is the world's second largest island. 40% of the world's languages are on that island. 600 different languages. People have been there for approximately 50,000 years. Back then, people were very rude about the Papuans, primitive, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I realized that there was nothing primitive about them. Sure, they lived in the jungle and everything came from the jungle. This is the land of birds of paradise. But because of the rugged terrain, the people were isolated from each other, all the different tribes. And that's how over 50,000 years, you got to 600 different languages where one group cannot speak to the next group in the next valley over. So the people, they're all evolved. And I took objection to them become called primitive because they're also present in 1981 on this planet as we were. We'd gone to the moon with our rocket ships, beginnings of computers, and you name it, what we had. Supposedly, we were more advanced, but I realized that we were no more advanced than they were because they also, their societies, had survived the test of time. They were also here with us at the same time. That's why I called that film Modern Times 2, and that's T-O-O playing on Charlie Chaplin's film, Modern Times, which is very, very famous, of course. But I wanted to show that these are modern times as well. So that's the feature film at the end of the show. We have an intermission. We always have that intermission where we sell more popcorn, coffee and maybe cake or something like that. Making popcorn, of course, lemonade. There'll be Becca's coffee there. And the plan is... It's still, as they say in the business, it's in the can. The plan is that we will be playing a video that I shot in 1987. It's, it's the only video. So October 23rd, in 1987, I shot a video of Anne Mortify performing at Manson's Hall. She brought her five-piece band, which she just finished coming back from Singapore. So that was her touring band. Anne has given me permission to digitize it and we'll select three songs, maybe four from that concert that was at Manson's Hall. We will project it on the same screen at the stage where she performed it 35 years ago. So that's kind of be kind of neat and spooky at the same time. That video has never been seen, that everything else has had some airing. So I call it a world premiere and we're still working on it. Can't guarantee it's all going to happen, but you've got to make plans and, and we've got two weeks to get that one sorted out. But that's going to be quite a hoot to put on. The catch is that Doug has made MP4 files of these films. 
the ones that we project will be high definition ones. But those MP4s, the hope is that the EM will be able to eventually host all the films on their website. So people will be able to go to them, <laughs> maybe shed a tear. When's showtime again? July 17th, which is a Sunday. Doors open at 7, shows at 7.30. And I will be narrating the Papua New Guinea film. I'll be giving short introductions to the groups of shorts. There's about 10 shorts. And I'll identify the actors in those films. That was George Cirque talking about the return of Cortez Cinema.